This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. We'll begin on page 987 in the Bibles in your rows, if you'd like to follow along as I read. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands, as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. We have been uh, working through uh, Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, one of the earliest letters we have in the New Testament, one of the earliest letters of Paul, uh, 17 years or so right after the the life life and death of of Jesus and resurrection of Jesus. And and Paul's writing to a church that he planted, uh, but then had to leave suddenly and then hasn't able to be back to. And he still cares for them. And this letter is part of his ongoing care. And we get a window here in 1 Thessalonians to how Paul builds up new converts in the faith. What does he want them to know? How does he help them get established? And today we turn to chapter 4, and the theme is sanctification. You see it right there at the very beginning, verse 2 and 3. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. And then verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. This is the will of God. Your sanctification. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to be sanctified? What to be sanctified means to be made holy. You may even know that uh, Latin term, sanctus, right? It's where we get the word sanctuary, holy space, right? To be set apart, to be made holy. And this word, this term, sanctification in Christian theology, it also carries the connotation of growth, of progress, becoming. You see that in verse 1 where Paul says, we know you're doing these things, but we want you to do it more and more. Right? The idea of progress and growth, direction. So to be sanctified is to grow more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. To grow more and more into the likeness of Jesus. It also carries uh, the connotation of contrast. Right? There's something about being sanctified that makes us different from the world, to be set apart from those around us. The uh, great 
Southern writer Flannery O'Connor said it this way. She said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you odd. (laughs) I think that's actually a really good description. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you odd. Because becoming like Jesus means necessarily being different than the world around you. If you are calibrating your life, if you are retuning your life to Jesus, then that means necessarily that you're not spending your time calibrating your life to whatever present cultural trend there may be. Whatever culture you find yourself, whatever land you may find yourself, whatever time you may find yourself, right? Wherever you are, if you're following Jesus, if you're tuning your life to Christ, it's going to make you different. And let me read to you just a little bit from another letter, uh, early letter. This one comes from the second century, it's called the Letter to Diognetus, very early document in the life of the, the church, written about 100 years after Paul is writing for Thessalonians. And I want you to re- listen to the description here in the Letter to Diognetus of Christians, of these people who are striving to become like Jesus. Listen to what this letter says. It says, they dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, and yet they endure all things as foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They marry, as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. goes on. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws, and at the same time, surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things and yet abound in all. They are dishonored and yet in their very dishonor are glorified. That's a pretty amazing description, isn't it? And it gets at some of the things that Paul mentions in our passage this morning, especially That phrase, they have a common table, but not a common bed. A common table, in other words, they were radically generous. They were hospitable to all. They were not selfish. They didn't hoard. They were not greedy, but not a common bed. They were promiscuous with their money, but not with their bodies. They were promiscuous with their kindness, but not with their sexuality. This was countercultural in the first century Greco-Roman world, and no doubt it gave some scorn to them from their neighbors, but eventually it became a powerful witness in the first few centuries and actually won the day in the Roman Empire. Christianity grew by 40% per decade for the first several centuries of its growth, right? Christianity, think about that, 40% per decade of growth for several hundred years, and this is before Constantine, right? This is before Christianity becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire. This is before Christians held places of power in culture. This is before Christians, by and large, had wealth or influences. It exploded with growth for several hundred years. How did that happen? Well, they were different. They were set apart, and that's sanctification, Or to say it a little bit differently, uh, early Christians, they were compellingly different to the world around them. 
And 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 tells us three ways that Paul hoped for the Thessalonians to be compellingly different. But by extension, three different ways for us as Christians in our day and age to be compellingly different as well. The three things are this. He says, uh, the things that should be different about us will be our approach to sex, number one. Our approach to work, number two. And then finally, our approach to death. How do we face death? And that one, we're going to leave off till next week. So we'll come back around to that next week, the remainder of chapter four. But the first two I want to talk about this morning, all just under that broader idea, asking yourself, if you are a follower of Jesus, are you compellingly different according to these ways? All right, so the first is the Christian approach to sex. Now, in the ancient world, there were two main views uh, of sex and sexuality in the ancient world. And this is painting with a very broad brush, but I got to be a little bit brief this morning, all right? So the, the, in the ancient world, there was what you might call the pagan view, and that was this, that sex is merely an appetite. That's how we should view it. Sex is merely an appetite. It's like any other bodily activity. When you feel like doing it, you should do it, right? If you're hungry, you eat. If you're thirsty, you drink. If you're sleepy, you sleep. If you're feeling sexy, you, I don't know what the proper grammar is there, right? But uh, fill in the blank. Um, you get the idea. If it's merely an appetite, right, then you deal with it like you do any other bodily activity. That was one view. But there was a second view in the ancient world. At the first, you would call the pagan view. You can call this the prude view, for lack of a better term. And this view simply says, sex is dirty. Sex is defiling. And this view comes down, if not from Plato directly, I've heard maybe that Plato didn't exactly hold this view, but the Neoplatonists, his followers certainly did. In fact, we have the, uh, the term, even in English today, of a platonic relationship, comes down from this idea, right? When we talk about a platonic relationship, we mean a sexless relationship. The idea being the spiritual is good, not so much from platonic relationship, but in this ancient idea, the idea was the spiritual is good, the physical is bad, sex is a physical act, and so it's necessarily dirty. It drags you down. It keeps you from the higher spiritual life. Yes, it's needed for procreation, but you should have as little to do with it as you possibly can. Now, those are, and again, painting with a very broad brush, the two main views in the ancient world. Sex is merely an appetite on the one hand, so do it with it whatever you want, right? Do, uh, do it whenever you feel like it and with whomever you like. Or on the other extreme, sex is, is dirty. Stay away from it as much as possible. These were the main views in Paul's day. But doesn't that actually sound kind of familiar? Aren't these still kind of the dominant views in the world today, but Paul would tell us, the larger scriptural story would tell us, neither of these are representative of the Christian view of sex. And so really quickly, I want to tease out, again, in broad outline this morning, 30,000 foot view, what you might call the Christian sex ethic. And if you want to hear more about this, I invite you to come to the fall conference, October 27th, 28th. You'll get three talks directly about this in much greater detail than what I can do this morning. But broad strokes this morning, the Christian sex ethic is this. Number one, sex is good. Something created by God. Number two, though, it has boundaries. Right? There's a context. And the reason for that is, number three, because it has a purpose. Right? There's a meaning that's meant to be carried through it. All right, so first, let's just talk about them really quickly. First, sex is good, right? Notice what Paul does not say 
in verse 3. He does not say, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from all sex. He doesn't say that, does he? Paul says abstain from sexual immorality. Now we'll come back to that term in a moment. But I do want you to note, he does not say abstain from all sex, that that's the way to sanctification, because that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches, in fact, that sex is good. It makes this case all the way throughout the scriptures. If you go back to the beginning, Genesis 2, God creates humanity, male and female. He tells them to be fruitful and multiply. And there's a scene right there in the beginning where Adam first sees Eve and he launches into a love poem. At last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And so some have said the Bible starts with a naked man singing rapturous love songs to a naked woman in the presence of God. That's how the Bible begins. Or Proverbs chapter 5, father counsels his son to avoid adultery and instead to rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. And how do I even begin to talk about the Song of Solomon? (laughs) A whole book of the Bible devoted to love poems, vividly describing a couple in their intimate life together. The Bible never whispers about sex, as if it's some taboo topic or some shameful thing. Rather, it's a gift of God. It's created by God. So contrary to the prudes, the Bible teaches that sex is good. But contrary to the pagans, the Bible teaches that there are boundaries. Or if you want to state that positively, um, there's a context for sex. God intends Physical intimacy, sex for one man and one woman within the exclusive commitment of marriage. Look again at verse three. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now that Greek word for sexual immorality there, you actually know the term probably. It's it's the Greek word porneia. So we get the word pornography. But actually in Greek, it has a much broader meaning than our English term. It's a broad term, meaning any sexual activity outside of marriage. Sex has a context, the covenant relationship of marriage. Look down at verses four and five. It says, Paul says, each one of you should know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Now, it is worth saying here that Paul is writing to a church that's mainly composed of Gentiles. What he's saying here is he's saying, yes, you've been raised and have grown up and are cooked in the stew of a culture that doesn't believe these things, but but now you've been called out of it, Paul says. Before you didn't know God, but now you do know God. And that has a bearing on everything in your life, including the way that you control your body, including who you sleep with. Well, how so? Well, Paul would say, how does God love us? What does it mean to know God, to know his love, to have a relationship with him? How does God love us? Is God half-hearted? Is he flighty? Does he use us for his own pleasure? Does he have one foot in and one foot out of the relationship at any time? No, God loves us with a total commitment. He took on flesh. He walked among us. He gave his life to see us redeemed. And so Paul is saying, if we think we can have true intimacy without a total commitment, it shows that we don't know God. Or at the very least, we don't or haven't made sense of 
the way that God relates to us. You know, in the modern world, when we say, you can give somebody your body, but without giving them the rest of you, Paul would say, the Bible would say, that's actually a fracturing of our life. It rips body and soul apart. The reason marriage is the context for sexual expression in the Bible is that marriage is the context in which we can live with total commitment to somebody else, bodily, socially, emotionally, economically, in the words of Genesis, and then reaffirmed by Jesus, the two shall become one, right, in a holistic way. So sex is good, but it has a context, finally, because it has a purpose. It has a message that it communicates. Sex is God's invented way for two people to say to one another, I belong completely, exclusively, and permanently to you. It's a way of bringing people together physically who brought all the other areas of their life together. Or to put it another way, sex acts as a symbol of the pledge and commitment and permanence and closeness and exclusivity of marriage. We're meant to say with our bodies what we're saying with the rest of our life, I belong to you and to no one else. The physical oneness is meant to be a sign of the emotional, legal, economic, social oneness that happens in marriage. And for that reason, it's too powerful to be treated casually because it has a meaning, it has a purpose, it has significance. Now, before we move on, and we do have to move on, let me just acknowledge a few questions, maybe some objections that I am sure are here uh, in our minds this morning, some of our minds anyway, right, that some people might have upon hearing this. And the first one is maybe the highest level objection maybe that you could have, which is, I didn't know anybody still believed this stuff, right? Probably some of us are feeling that way, and you're like, where am I? Like, is this a time warp, right? Does anybody still believe these things? And listen, let me just say, if you're thinking what I've just said is terribly regressive and narrow-minded, I get it. Right? This is not in step, I'll admit. This is not in step with what most people believe in our culture today. But I would ask you to think about this other thing for a second. That this has been, even though it's not, this is a minority view in our broader culture today, this has been the overwhelming consensus throughout the centuries of Protestant Christianity, Catholic Christianity, Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox Christianity, Beyond that, this is the historical teaching of Judaism. This is the historical and contemporary teaching of Islam. This is the historical and contemporary teaching of Hinduism. In other words, a whole lot of people throughout history and in the world today. That doesn't mean this is the right way to see things, but it does mean that you can't really, not logically anyway, you can't really hang the sign of loony fringe right, on this perspective. This is uh, the thinking of, of many throughout the history of the world and, and still today. And so if I could humbly suggest that even if this does feel very strange in all our culture, you ought to at least want to give this a listen because this has been the teaching of many throughout history and many in the world today. And I would invite you also, if this is a hang-up, to not let this get in the way of seeing the larger story of Christianity that this fits into when we understand that bigger story that Christianity tells about the world, which we try to tell here in, in all kinds of different ways each week in our worship. So that's, that's the first thing. Just would you give it a hearing? But secondly, I want to acknowledge maybe another question or I guess more of an objection. 
And, and then that would be this, um, you know, shouldn't Christianity, shouldn't pastors, you know, just stay in your lane, right? Josh, just tell me about spiritual things, right? Let's not talk about who I should sleep with, right? Stay away from telling us what to do with our bodies. And let me say, I get this objection too. And frankly, I really would love if that were the case entirely. I do not particularly enjoy or relish this conversation. But I do want you to notice what Paul says at verse 3. He says, for this is the will of God. Even more explicit in verse 8, he says, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. In other words, Paul is saying, 1 Thessalonians is saying, this is not an arbitrary take it or leave it kind of add-on to Christianity, but it's part of this bigger story because God is the creator of both body and soul. This is part of what Christianity teaches, the story that he tells, uh, that God tells about the world, the story that he tells about us. God cares about all of you, including what you do with your body. And, by the way, he also cares about how we treat each other this way. You know, there's a, a contrast between um, what Paul calls the passion of the lust in verse 4 and holiness and honor in verse 3. The passion of lust is, is when, we, uh, when we objectify others, when we use other people's bodies without a care for their soul. The contrast, though, is to honor, right? It involves reverence and esteem, and in the right context and in the right way, sex it involves honor. It's meant to be encouraging. It's meant to build people up. And that's a good word, by the way, even within the context of marriage, to use this rightly. Our sexual lives together are meant to build up. They're meant to encourage, not to take, not to use. And then look what Paul says down in verse 6. He says that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this manner because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. Now, it used to be probably just even a few years ago when you have that phrase, the Lord as an avenger, I'd have to really explain that and maybe defend that and do a lot of apologetics. But now the Marvel movies have come out and uh, the Avengers are like a, like a good thing. And, and, and I think they are, right? And they're the heroes in the movies because what do Avengers do, right? They defend those who've been wronged. They defend those who've had something taken. They defend those who've been harmed. And I hope you hear verse six is good news for you this morning because some of us in this room have been wronged. Some of us have been abused and used and hurt and betrayed. And the Bible says the pain that you felt, the hurt that you've had, God sees that and he knows that. He's your defender. If no one else hears, if no one else knows, God knows and God cares. And that should be comforting to those of us who've been hurt, and it should be a sobering to those of us who've done the hurting. And the last thing, and then we'll move on. Uh, what if you're here this morning and you're just feeling rotten, right, having this discussion, right? Because maybe you've got a history and you're wondering, is there a place for me here, right? If I, if I bring all kinds of baggage into this room, is there a place for me here? And I, I, let me just affirm, and if you hear nothing else this morning, I want you to hold on to this. Yes, there is a place for you here. You know, all these letters that Paul writes in the New Testament, he, he's writing to folks who are, are a mess in so many ways. And some of that mess is things that have been done to people and the baggage and the wounds that they carry. And some of that mess is things that they have caused and that they have done. 
But with all that baggage, Paul says, if you know Jesus and if you're seeking to follow him, do you know what Paul says of all these folks? He calls them brothers and sisters. He calls them loved by God. He calls them saints. And he says that they belong. Yes, he wants them to grow. Yes, that's what sanctification is all about. But hear this, the church is always full of wounded strugglers and always will be. We're meant to help each other. Paul says, I do want you to do these things, but I want you to do it more and more. He wouldn't need to say the more and more part if people had already arrived and if that was the expectation that everybody had. More and more. Sanctification is our call to grow up more and more into the likeness of Jesus, to be compellingly different. And verses 9 to 12 then go on to tell us that there's other areas of life that we need to employ this. And one of those ways we're called to be compellingly different is the way that we think about our public life in the community. What happens when we leave our front door, right? What are we supposed to be like as we engage with others, we engage with our neighborhood, we engage, we engage with our work, the work that we're employed to do, right, where you get your paycheck, but actually everything that you do in the neighborhood, in the church, in the school, even in your home, certainly in your employment. Part of sanctification involves the way that we work. And, and Paul has to talk about this, evidently, because there seems that there was a group in Thessalonica who was not working, or at least they weren't working well. Chapter 5, verse 14, Paul says this. He says, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idol. Now, listen, it's important to say this. He's not condemning unemployment. Right? He's not condemning unemployment, those who want to work but, but can't find work. But Paul is admonishing here idleness. That is, those who have work to do and they aren't doing it. So what do we, what, from what Paul has to say about this here, what do we learn about the Christian view of work? Four things, and, and I'm gonna be, again, 30,000 foot view this morning, but four things. Number one, all work has dignity and value. All work has dignity and value. Look at verse 11. Uh, he wants to, Paul says, I want you to aspire to live quietly to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you. Now, that phrase probably doesn't jar you like it would first century Greco-Roman readers, work with your hands, but it certainly would have been jarring to them. This would have been, I don't know if it would have been compellingly different, it would have been different. Because in the first century, the uh, Greek attitude toward physical labor, manual labor, is that it was bad. Right? This is what servants do. This is what slaves do. This is something you try to get out of doing. And in fact, if you did it, it would be menial work and it would convey sort of a menial status upon you. But how vastly different are the scriptures? What do we see? Again, in the very early pages of the Bible, we see Genesis 2. God has his hands in the dirt creating Adam and Eve. God is portrayed in Genesis 2 as a worker doing manual labor. This was the kind of thing that made the Greeks cringe when they first came into contact with the Hebrew Bible. But then you keep going in Genesis 2, and then God puts Adam and Eve in paradise in the Garden of Eden, and everything is great, right? It's set up to uh, be the absolute ideal environment for human flourishing. This is before the fall, before sin enters the world, before brokenness. And God commissions them to work, right? Work is not a necessary evil in a broken world, but work is part of a good 
that existed in paradise. And then you fast forward to the New Testament, and how does God enter into the world? He doesn't come the way the Greek gods would have come as a philosopher. He doesn't come the way Roman gods would have come as a general or a conquering hero. He comes as a carpenter. Jesus works with his hands. And in the resurrection, Jesus redeems the physical world, right? It's not just his spirit caught up to heaven, but he raises physically, bodily, giving meaning and value to the physical world. And when he returns again, he's going to clean this world up. He's going to build a new city. And all this means there is dignity in all kinds of work because we have a worker God. In Scripture, God is described in in various ways as creator, gardener, caregiver, artist, manager, cook, physician, builder, architect, foot washer, servant, shepherd, even a preacher sometimes. All work has dignity and value. Now, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? Well, it means first and foremost, right, no work, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, no work should be beneath you. No work should be beneath you. That means when you're looking for a job, you shouldn't screen things out simply because you think there are certain things that don't meet your uh, status in life or something, right? There isn't a hierarchy of work that, that means that some are not meaningful. In fact, the Christian view is that all work has meaning, done with the right attitude, done in the right way. And not just as the way as you look for a job, but, but as a volunteer, right? The way you serve at school, the way you serve in the neighborhood, the way you serve at church, there should be nothing beneath you, no matter your training, no matter your socioeconomic status, right? That view, that kind of snottiness or snoot, uh, snootiness, that's paganism. That is not Christianity. And this should also inform the way that we treat other people, right? As we... As we're engaging with their work in different ways. The people that you come into contact with throughout the week, as they're doing various kinds of work, are you appreciative and grateful? Are you kind and generous? Do you show dignity and honor in the way that you interact? If not, you're living contrary to the call of God. And frankly, it's ugly. It's one of the reasons Paul says in verse 12, right, that we are to walk properly before outsiders, not to be an obstacle to people understanding who God is. All work has dignity and value because we have a worker God. Second thing, our work is meant to be helpful. Our work is meant to be helpful. We're meant to be useful, in other words. We're meant to work in such a way that we show love and care toward others in the community. Verse nine starts with Paul saying, now concerning brotherly love. Now that's also a word that you know. It's the word in Greek, it's Philadelphia. Brotherly love. Concerning brotherly love. He's talking about your life out in the world, your life in community with others. He's really talking about the entirety of your public life. Everything you put out into the world, Paul says the goal, the aim of it all is love. He says it again at the end of the verse, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Uh, Dorothy Sayers, uh, the British mystery novelist, public intellectual, she has an essay called Why Work. It's a good essay. Some of it's a little uh, directly addressing things in her time, early 20th century, but it's a, it's a great essay as a whole. It's called Why Work. You can find it online. Uh, but in the essay, 
She says that, that people in the Western world are dying for lack of a biblical vision of work. Right? We're just, we're confused. We're dying for a lack of a biblical vision of work. She says either we make too little of our work, right? That is, it's just the means to the end of a paycheck, all right? And we're just working for the weekend. We're working for the paycheck. We make too little of what we do. Or she says, some people, we make too much of it. We, we actually think of our work as what gives us meaning as a person. It gives us uh, our identity as a person. And then, actually, our work becomes less about what we do for others and more about what it gives us. She says, both of those can be detrimental. Instead, she says, the key to the biblical understanding of work is, how can I be useful? How can I be useful? How can I love others? And she tells the story in the essay of a doctor that she knows who, as he was talking to her, he said, you know, I never understood the meaning of my work until World War II. I never understood the meaning of my work until World War II because his motives up to that point for becoming a doctor, for pursuing medicine, his motives were entirely about money and status, right? The paycheck that he was getting and the status this would give him in society. But then he said, I was drafted into World War II, I served as a medic, and then all of a sudden, those two things went away. The pay was crap in the military and serving in World War II, and then secondly, he said, there was no status because nobody saw what I was doing. Yes, there were heroic deeds that were done, but nobody was going to hear about them, nobody was going to see them, and at that moment, all those previous reasons I had for doing the work were gone, but then he said, that's where I discovered the real meaning of my work because never had I been so useful. Never had he the opportunity to help so much. And it wasn't about money, and it wasn't about status. It was for a chance to show brotherly love. You see, good work blesses other people. And so when you create something, or you care for something, or you fix something, or you clean something, or you sell something, or you write something, or you improve something, it's with a chance to be useful. And if that's your goal, it can make all kinds of work in every day meaningful, right? Whether you're cleaning a house or researching a medicine or educating a child or changing a diaper or editing an essay or cleaning a street or building a bridge or fixing a toilet or making a meal or serving somebody a meal, all these things can be expressions of love. And if you find yourself in a job that's just frankly not all that great, you don't love it, if you can put on this perspective it can at least make that work tolerable while you look for something else. I'm not saying you can't change jobs. In fact, it's not wrong at all to change jobs. Maybe you should. But if you're in that less than ideal job, right, this kind of perspective can, can make it meaningful, at least tolerable, while you do look for the other one. And if you are in a job that suits you really well, perhaps it undergirds or it changes the motivation that you have to do your work well, to do your work with excellence. All right, third thing. So first, right, all work has dignity and value. Work is meant to be useful and to help others. Third thing is good work crowds out some of the nonsense that we might be tempted to get ourselves into. Right, listen to what Paul says in verse 11. He says, aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs. Now, I found this really funny this week. Maybe, I don't know if you, you, you are finding it as funny as I. Maybe, maybe this will help. I, I was in the waiting room on Wednesday morning in the doctor's office, and I was sitting, and I was waiting for my appointment, and somebody to my right and somebody to my left. This is a close quarters, small doctor's office waiting room. And two people, both on their phones, very loudly 
gossiping about their neighbors, right? I heard about the terrible outfits that they wore. I heard about, you know, the nuisance of their yard and whatever else, right? Talking badly about their neighbors. Typical gossip just happened to be very loud and in stereo to me at that moment, right? But because I had been studying this passage this week, I immediately wanted to turn to each of them in turn and say to them, you know what the Apostle Paul would say about this. (laughs) I didn't. Maybe I should have. But you know what Paul would say? He'd say, "Um, you all need some work to do, (laughs) I do think that's what he would say, right? If you have time to gossip, if you have time to fault find, if you have time to meddle in other people's business, if you have time to troll someone online, if you have time to relentlessly post negative uh, comments over and over again, Paul would say you need some work to do. Paul's cure for the busybody is to get yourself some good work. Now, he's not saying you can never retire. He's not saying you can't change jobs or take time away from a job. He is saying that our lives are meant to be so full of loving and serving that you don't have any time to be quarrelsome. You don't have any time to be meddling in other people's affairs. Listen, there are no shortage of ways to love and to serve other people. So Paul would say, get to it and get offline. (laughs) I don't know about the offline. I probably would say that. Get off the internet. Um, Last thing, all right? Uh, And this is maybe the most foundational one of all. The Christian view of work says that we work ultimately to please God. That's the ultimate hallmark of the Christian view of work. We work in order to please God. This whole chapter is framed that way. I don't know if you caught it in verse 1. Paul says, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk, and to please God. In another one of Paul's letters, Ephesians chapter six, he says, we work not ultimately for our human masters, but we work for the Lord. And if you take that to heart, it will inform the care that you take with your work. It will inform how hard you work. If you know that you're working ultimately for the Lord, you won't cut corners, you won't cheat clients, you won't lie on expense reports, you will give your best effort. You will take time off, actually, that's part of it too, because God is the creator of the Sabbath, right, to make sure that you are not overworking. The point is, whatever the expectations of your human employer The Christian work ethic says you have a higher authority. We're to do all our work as unto the Lord. And over all this, right, Paul says this is the will of God, your sanctification. The call is for Christians who are following Jesus to be compellingly different. And you never check that off. You never get to say you've arrived, right? That's why Paul says more and more. We want to be like Jesus more and more and more. And we do this, we get together, we live in community together to help each other with these things, to cheer each other along, to pick each other up when we grow faint of heart. And so we're going to take a moment here just to pray silently to, and I invite you to use this time to, to talk to God about where he's calling you to grow more and more. And then we're going to pray together a prayer of confession before we come to the Lord's table and partake of his grace. So let's just take a moment to pray silently to the Lord. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.